0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Our Bibles tonight and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Tonight our plan is to get almost to the end of chapter eight. So Genesis chapter six is where we are tonight. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand in the air and we'll get one to you. Genesis chapter six. And I know last week we were in the book of Galatians uh, with Pastor Matt. Um, But so you might have forgotten that uh, two weeks ago, we actually already got into the sixth chapter of Genesis uh, through the first um, nine, or excuse me, first eight, verses of Genesis. And I'll just remind you of it. Remember the whole thing with the Nephilim and the giants and the land, the heroes of Renown? It was that section at the beginning of chapter 6. So tonight we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Now in in our last study in Genesis, one of the things we saw was humanity's condition during the days of Noah. Uh, It was an era, you could say, where rebellion reigned in the hearts of humanity. After reading the events of the first handful of chapters in Genesis, chapters where we see things like creation and the fall and Cain's line and Seth's line, the reader might begin wondering, we might begin wondering, is humanity going to turn to God? Is humanity going to love and walk and serve God? Or would we seek him and enjoy him? Or would we reject him? So would we worship or would we reject him? And the answer in those early verses of chapter six is a bold and total no. People were corrupted, as we saw in those first eight verses of chapter six, and their corruption was complete. But there was one man that we saw in chapter six, verse eight, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says in verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is meant for us as a note of hope in the midst of depravity. Even though humanity is broken, there is one who found grace in God's sight. Okay, so this leads us to the story of Noah, the book of his generation. So let's start out reading it together tonight, starting in verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We'll pause right there. Right away, Moses presents us with a little bit of a contrast. First, we have Noah. And he describes him and his generations. We're told that Noah was a righteous man in verse 9, that he was blameless in his generation in verse 9, and we're also told that he walked with God. Uh, We don't know, by the way, the spiritual condition of Noah's children. Shem, Ham, uh, and Japheth, we're going to see some things about them in the coming chapters, not tonight, Uh, but uh, as Noah's sons, they were going to survive the cataclysm of the coming flood. Uh, But I'm getting ahead of myself. So after you read about Noah, notice that there's a contrast. It says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. So there's Noah, a righteous man, but the earth is corrupt. And we already know this, like I said, from the first seven verses of chapter 6. It was a place, according to verse 11, that was filled with violence. In other words, it was filled with destructive forces and ideologies which were destroying its inhabitants. And notice, three times in that little paragraph that I just read, the the world or humanity is described as corrupt. First, in verse 11, it's described as corrupt in God's sight. God saw it. Second, in the sight of anyone who could have seen or beheld them at that time, they were also seen as corrupt in verse 12. And finally, in their interactions and their way on the earth, they were corrupt as well in verse 12. In other words, Moses presents mankind at this point as completely lost, tarnished, broken, and corrupted by sin. Now, we might think that we live in times of evil or chaos, but this pre-flood, antediluvian time seems to be much worse. It was like this. It was like no one even had a chance. All human offspring, all new generations of children would be subject to the terrible corruption of their forebearers. It was like everyone born was doomed to death, spiritually and physically. There would be no new godly generation. Society had completely and thoroughly been corrupted like never before. This corruption was the finalization of an earlier development in the story. Look in your Bibles back to verse 5 of chapter 6. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's important to note what God saw when he looked at humanity at this time in our history. It was the greatness of the wickedness of man that God saw. The idea is that humans had corrupted their way on the earth through their wickedness. It was as if humanity was beyond repair at a level of brokenness never seen before. And One reason that I'm mentioning this tonight is because There have been some misunderstandings concerning the cause of the flood throughout Christianity. Some people have thought that the flood was God's response to the worship of other gods. Some have thought that carnivorous eating habits led God to judge the earth. Some think that the hybrid creatures that we saw at the beginning of chapter 6 polluted the human population and God decided to destroy it. And some people in Eastern flood accounts think that the reason for the flood was that God didn't like overpopulation or that he was bothered with too much noise coming from planet Earth. But Moses is careful to help us understand why the flood came. It was God's judgment for unparalleled wickedness in humanity at that time. Okay, This description from God calls to mind a particular doctrine, the doctrine of the depravity of man. Uh, Romans 1 through 3 is the place where you'll see this doctrine described in great detail. But here during Noah's day, depravity had run its full course. Mankind was completely ruined. And remember, one of the things that God saw in Noah's generation was widespread violence. They were corrupted and they were violent towards each other, and probably this doesn't just mean that they were always warring or they were always fighting, but it likely means that they were also promoting ideas that were violent to the world's inhabitants. They were destroying each other through the messages and ideas that they were promoting at that time. And it's not hard to imagine messages which lead to violence to humanity, perhaps messages that lead to things like abortion or confusing little children about their natural biology and the like. These are violent doctrines towards human beings. Remember, though, how depravity is always embedded scripturally in the context of grace. I mean, Romans 1 through 3, which describes the depravity and brokenness of man all the way to the point that it says there is none who seeks after God, no, not one, then unleashes the glorious truth of the gospel upon its readers. Here in the book of Genesis, we see that in the midst of all this brokenness and depravity, there is a man and a family and an ark by which God offers salvation to the world. So in the middle of depravity, in God's mind, there is always hope. Even in the depths of our brokenness, the gospel reaches in and offers us salvation. Okay, but before we move on, let's consider for a second how Noah was a righteous man in the midst of this extreme brokenness. You know, his whole generation, darkened, depraved, wanting nothing to do with God. But in the midst of that, Noah walked with God. Like Enoch, who came before him, he just enjoyed the Lord. And we don't know the full details of what Noah knew about God. I mean, here we are with all 66 books of the Bible. We know many things about God. We don't know all the details of what Noah knew about God. But what we do know is that whatever God told Noah, Noah responded to that revelation that God had given to him. And I want you to think about Noah when you feel like it's impossible to walk with God in our modern world. In the midst of all that brokenness and depravity, Noah held on to his integrity. He walked with God. You see, believers today, we're called to walk with God like Noah. We're called to reject the depravity that we see around us and feel inside of us. And we're to commit to Jesus in this generation. And for that, we'll have to prepare ourselves for a little bit of pain, amen? I mean, it's going to be difficult. If you really think about it, Christians are called to do nearly everything differently from the culture that we live in. We do money differently, sex differently, singleness differently, marriage differently, family differently, priorities differently, entertainment differently. We are a different, strange people here walking on this earth. And there are times that those differences create a measure of pain and difficulty. But Noah was a man who walked with God and had that level of commitment and sacrifice. Okay, let's move on to verse 13 and see the construction of the ark itself. It says, And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself, verse 14, an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Okay, before we consider... The judgment that God said that he would bring at this time. Let's just think for a moment about something a little lighter. Let's just think about the ark itself, the boat itself. Uh, first, notice in verse 14 that he was told to build an ark. Now, because it's called an ark, some people have wondered if there's a relationship between Noah's ark and Israel's ark of the covenant, but they're two separate Hebrew words. The word for ark, here actually has a relationship with an a, uh, Egyptian word for palace. So the idea is that of a floating dwelling place or barge, like a floating palace, not a steerable ship. And the focus of the dimensions are there to help us appreciate something special about Noah. Noah was meticulous In his obedience to God, he followed every little dimension that God gave to him. Now, if one cubit is equal to 18 inches, and that's a a good estimate of this measurement, then Noah's ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. If it was flat on the bottom, then its total displacement would be 43,000 tons and would cover one and a half football fields. So it would be comparable to a small cargo ship by today's standards. And this, in Noah's day, was a massive vessel. According to the records at our disposal, even the Egyptians at the time that Moses wrote only had ships that would go up to 170 feet in length. And Noah's Ark was 450 feet long, and when they navigated, they were still, during the Egyptian era in Moses' time, navigating within sight of land. Noah's Ark, by comparison, was huge. Now, now in a moment, as we go through this study, I'm going to talk about various flood legends that are throughout the world. Different cultures have posited various flood stories as part of their history or their ancestry. And in those stories, arcs or boats are constructed to save people, just like in the story of Noah and his flood. But whenever the dimensions or the shape of their boats are talked about, they're always uh, presented as non-seaworthy vessels. Some are shaped like cubes. Some are shaped like ziggurats or pyramids. In other words, they're just not seaworthy. They can't float. Only the Genesis account describes a book which could actually float. And though we learn that the ark had a roof and a door and three decks, we're not supposed to think, I I don't think, that we have all the details of what the ark was going to look like. I, I think one can surmise that these were the basic directions that God gave to Noah and that Noah and the workers he hired to help build the ark finished it out as they saw fit. You know, maybe pens for the animals or lodging for Noah's family and storehouses for all the food. You know, things like that were going to be necessary and I imagine that Noah, fitting in with God's directions, was able to build these things. But before moving on past this section, we do have to consider some of the statements that God made. Notice in verse 13 that he said he'd determined to make an end of all flesh Because of their violence. Then he said he would bring, verse 17, a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. It's a severe word of judgment, in other words. He says in verse 17, everything that is on the earth shall die. And and, and though the text highlights the salvation of Noah over and over again, though that's the focus, the judgment of the wicked is also a major theme of this passage. In other words, while the emphasis is on the fact that God saved Noah and created a new righteous order with a small remnant, we also notice God judged the earth. So this, is a, this, this passage has an ominous and fearful tone. I mean, it's just shocking to consider that this is one of those Bible stories that we like to decorate children's nurseries with. You know, Noah and the ark and animals and rainbows. It's a terrible story of God's judgment upon a world that had rejected him. It is serious and real and occurred. This is the judgment of God upon a humanity so depraved that it was killing itself. The Bible presents God whether we like it or not, as the judge of all the earth. As its creator, he's the only one qualified to discipline and punish. Only he can determine how far is too far. Still, though we know about the flood, it's often strange for modern Christians to consider God's role as judge. You know, Isaiah, in Isaiah 28, verse 21, described God's judgment as his strange or alien work. And we agree with that because we know of God's love. We know of God's grace. We know of God's mercy. So judgment to us does seem to be an alien work of God at times. But this is part of God's nature. And we should not be caught up in the error which says that God is incapable of judgment. J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God, said, The certainty that there is no more to be said of God than that he is infinitely forbearing and kind. That certainty is as hard to eradicate as bindweed. And when once it is put down roots, Christianity in the true sense of the word simply dies off. For the substance of Christianity is faith in the forgiveness of sins through the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. In other words, the Father let the Son experience judgment for humanity on the cross. Belief in Jesus saves us from God's judgment. If God does not judge, then why did Jesus die for us? But what else would the reader learn about God from this passage? Okay, not only does God judge, but he also provides a vessel or an instrument. For salvation you see this is what god has done we know this he has provided the cross amen it's our wooden structure as christians that provides for our salvation and unlike the ark the cross's capacity is limitless it can house anyone and everyone who will come to christ As Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires for as many people as possible to come into his mode of salvation, come into his ark, so to speak, to come into the cross of Christ and be saved. But verse 18 goes on to say, from God. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of, of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, verse 20, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, Of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to keep you alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Okay, here's the thing. Though God said that he would judge the world there in verse 18, he said that he would also establish his covenant with Noah. Okay, this is a major development the serpent crusher. Remember that figure from Genesis 3, verse 15? There would come one from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Now we learn that not only would he come from Eve and flow through Eve's son, Seth, but now we learn that he would come from Noah, that the line is getting a little bit narrower. And as a result, Noah would bring his wife, his three sons, and their wives, so eight people in total, aboard the ark. But we quickly learned the ark was not only for Noah and his family, but also for animals. It says two of every sort of land animals and birds were brought into the ark in verse 19 and 20. They were to be male and female, and the reason for that is obvious, so that they could reproduce after the flood waters subsided and repopulate the earth. Every animal that couldn't survive the deluge of water was to be brought into uh, the ark. Okay, we're going to talk later on tonight about how this might have occurred. But some have suggested various ways that God made all of this possible for Noah. Rather than see Noah as like this glorified animal collector, you know, running through Mesopotamia, just like, hey, elephants, come on, please, will you come with me? Uh, Many people see God helping him miraculously in the process. And the text seems to allow for this. Look at verse 20. It says, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. In other words, the God who spoke the animals into existence could also direct them to go into the ark. Uh, Sort of like a a migration that's just innate to them where they know where they need to head. Some have also suggested that God could have put the animals into a state of hibernation uh, while they were on the ark enabling Noah's small little family to care for such a vast array of creatures. And it's also been suggested that microevolution, the variations which occur within the species, would have allowed Noah to take a much smaller amount of animals than we might imagine. And others have even wondered if God brought Noah young, less than fully matured species which would have allowed for more space for some of those larger animals when they're fully grown. And others have suggested that if God brought the animals to Noah, Noah would would have been excused from transporting any animals that God decided to leave behind, such as dinosaurs, perhaps. And some have even drawn up the calculations of how many animals could fit into such a space, and it is surprising to see how much a cargo ship of this size could have held. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this later in the study. But notice in verse 22, the simple statement from God. It says, Noah did this. Noah did what God asked, and he did all that God commanded him. You know what this is? This is a statement from Moses, inspired by the Spirit, so a statement from God, describing what righteousness looks like. You see, Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. And God spoke to him, and he did everything that God commanded him. He's contrasted with everybody else on the earth. He hears the Lord, he obeys the Lord. This is the text's way of saying, this is what righteousness looks like. Meticulous obedience to God's specifications. And this was a massive project, don't you think? And he would have stood out like a strange man in that culture for following God, but he still did everything that God told him to do. This was complete obedience. The book of Hebrews tells us this about Noah in this moment. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, what that Hebrews passage shows us about Noah is that Noah's faith operated in reverent fear. He'd come to a place where he respected God's voice more than the opinion of any other person on the face of the earth. And this was important for Noah because his life was really going to be a mockery. Old, crazy Noah. I'm sure he became the source of lots of comedic material over the years that he built that ark. And they would say that he was on the wrong side of history. What are you doing, man? But unfortunately, that generation would laugh until they could laugh no longer. But if Noah had thought highly of the opinions of others, he might not have embarked on the journey to build the ark. And notice also that Noah's faith, not only was it fueled by his fear and respect and reverence for God, but his faith was costly. It was costly. It costs a lot to follow Jesus. And Noah serves as a beautiful example for the price that believers pay to follow their Lord. You know, he became a laughingstock, like I said, a punchline of many jokes, I'm sure. And it was his simple and long obedience to God that made him into that laughingstock. And not only was that the cost, but he had to pay He had to pay for workers, materials. He had to donate his time and energy to the task at hand. The ark would not miraculously build itself. Noah had to do it. And though God could have spoken the ark into existence, he chose instead to build one through a a man. Noah's life was spent building and preparing this ark, and it cost him to place his faith in God. But in the end, Of the story, Noah would have said it was well worth it. All that time, all that energy, all that cost, it was well worth it. Because it's like Jesus said. Whoever would save his life, Jesus said, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And Noah's a great example of that kind of life. But one last thing I want to say about Noah before we move on. His faith also impacted other people. You know, the, the passage I read to you in Hebrews tells us that he saved his household. Noah's family was saved through his crazy boat that he built out there in the wilderness. And I wonder if, if as he built that boat, there were times that Noah felt like a failure. I wonder if there were times that he doubted. I'm certain that when the boat began to float, though, he didn't feel like he failed but that he'd made the right decision. His whole house was saved because of his allegiance to God. And as people watch Noah's life, uh, you know, I I'm, I don't know how much Noah spoke. Sometimes people see him or envision him preaching and preaching and preaching. But he could have just lived his life and built that ark. But as people watched his life, they should have come become convicted over sin and given their own lives to God. Noah's construction project was like a pulpit, declaring God's grace to the world. You know, repent, turn from your error, judgment is coming, God has told me. In building, Noah became a herald of righteousness, according to Peter in 2 Peter 2 verse 5. My suspicion is that there's the possibility that had humanity heeded Noah's message through the building of his ark, that God would have relented from the disaster he planned to bring upon them. When Jonah went to the Ninevites and said that in 40 days, God's judgment was going to come upon them, their repentance unlocked, unleashed God's grace upon them. And he did not bring the judgment that he said that he would bring. But instead of repenting, Uh, The people refused, and Noah's presence merely solidified their position of rebellion against God. Okay, let's move on into chapter seven together. It says in verse one, that then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, And a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him." Noah, verse 6, was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his flood, and his sons, and his wife, and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. Okay, there's some repetition here, but there is one new development that stands out. It's that there are, was the command from God for Noah to bring seven pairs of all clean animals and birds there in verse 2. So all the other animals, it's just the male and the female, but there are these clean animals that Noah is supposed to bring seven pairs of each. And the distinction between clean and unclean animals was something that the original readers, the Israelites, were very familiar with. Uh, Because uh, clean and unclean animals were stipulated for them in the law of Moses. But when they read this, they might have been surprised. They might have thought, man, Noah, he knew about clean and unclean animals? We thought that was a recent development. Even before the Levitical and ceremonial law was given to Moses, God established some animals as clean Now, after the flood, Noah is going to offer sacrifices to God. We'll see that in our next study in Genesis. And so some regard God's command to bring more clean animals into the ark uh, as a way for God to preserve more animals for the sacrificial system that he was going to establish. Uh, You know, because it would have been like a bummer to be told by God to sacrifice a cow and it's the last one on earth, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) I, for one, am very thankful that it wasn't. So this might have been a way for God to protect the sacrificial portion of the animal population. But it is possible, and we'll get into this more when we're in chapter nine, that this wasn't only about sacrifice, but also about diet. After the flood, God will expressly Uh, allow humanity to eat meat, but it's unlikely that they started eating meat at that time. Uh, The clean versus unclean designations for animals, for Israel at least, had uh, something to do with what they would sacrifice to God, but also what they would eat, what they would consume. Uh, So uh, they could eat They could eat clean animals, so it's possible that Noah and his family brought an extra amount of clean animals to supplement their diet uh, while they're on the ark. And this is how, by the way, nature, and this is also how the cross works. Death begets life. The animals that Noah would eat would die so that he might live. Jesus died on the cross so that we might live. But like I said, we'll talk more about uh, that and it's modern ramifications when we get to chapter 9. But it goes on in verse 10 and says, And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, there's a lot of, precision in chapter 7, a lot of precision in the whole flood account. We learn here that seven days, verse 10, after going into the ark, the flood came. Uh, it all happened, we're told, in verse 11, during the 600th year of Noah's life. Uh, we're given even right down to the month and right down to the day uh, when these events take place. Part of the reason I mention that is because This is not at all written like fiction, uh, which came from that time and era. Uh, They would not have included dates and ages and things like that. This is written as a fact which occurred. Notice as well the deluge of water that came upon the earth. It says in verse 12 that rain fell upon the earth, but Also, the foundations of the great deep burst forth, in verse 11. And the windows of the heavens were opened, in verse 11. So what this is describing is the rushing in of water from all directions. From below, from above, from the rain. Water is coming in from every place. On the very same day, verse 13, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And Noah's wife and three wives, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Now part of the reason we know this entire story is, in God's mind, more about Noah's salvation is because of the very tedious way that the story reiterates the details of Noah's deliverance. You know, Noah's righteousness is highlighted again in verse 1 of chapter 7. His household salvation is reiterated also in verse 1. The directions concerning the animals is repeated over and over again. Noah's obedience is mentioned again in verse five. We get Noah's age twice in verse six and eleven. We get the fact that they came in two and two, male and female, multiple times. And we might even start getting impatient, like, "Haven't I read this before? You know, why why am I seeing all these details over and over again?" But all this repetition. And reinforcement helps us know what God thinks this story is about. It's about Noah's and humanity's ultimate salvation. This is especially highlighted by the detail at the end of verse 16, that the Lord shut him into the ark. God closed the ark, not Noah. It's a statement regarding God's decision to judge. We don't judge, God does. And right now, God has the door of salvation open to all of humanity. But that door will not remain open forever. A moment comes where judgment will come and the door of opportunity will close. Salvation will no longer be possible. And as long as someone is alive, the door is open and they can be saved. But one day, the door will close. All right, so I told you earlier that at some point in the teaching, we talk about various flood legends, and this seems as good a place as any to note that Genesis is not the only ancient literature to recount a flood story similar to Noah's story. There are hundreds, actually, of flood traditions in various cultures throughout the world, all over the globe. And uh, they differ from one another on various details, but in most of them, there are some details that are repeated. Uh, There's a favored family in most of the stories. Uh, uh, That family is spared from catastrophe by means of a boat. And the death that comes to those who are not spared comes in through a flood coming in uh, to the earth. Now, one example of these flood legends would be the Sumerian creation myth. And in their creation myth is a story of a flood. In it, there's a hero, and he's warned to build a boat. He does, and when the flood waters come, the boat floats down the Euphrates River to an island, and everybody in the boat is saved. There's another famous uh, legend called the Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, And in theirs, a god named Enlil feels the need to control the overpopulation of the earth. And he tries to do it by uh, famine and drought, and when that doesn't work, he finally decides to send a catastrophic flood. And it happens without warning, but he does tell the hero figure in that story to build a boat. Okay, this is what you'll see in these various flood legends. And there are similarities in these stories to the account that we just are are reading right now in Genesis. The flood comes as a threat to the human population. The hero figure, whoever they are in the particular stories, is told to build a boat for salvation. Animals are often aboard each boat. And in the end, the hero figure sends out birds. And we're going to read of Noah doing that same thing. And the stories conclude with some kind of sacrifice to the gods, or in our case, in the book of Genesis, God himself. But there are also differences between those flood legends throughout the world and the book of Genesis. Genesis speaks of God, while the other stories mention several gods. The Epic of Gilgamesh details a cube-shaped boat, like I said earlier, where Noah's Ark was rectangular, the only one in all the accounts or other legends that is seaworthy. Uh, The length of rain is different. The identity of the people in the boat is different. And the mountains they landed on are all different. Okay, so the question that we would obviously ask is, how are these ancient stories linked with the book of Genesis? Some scholars, you can only imagine, would jump to the conclusion that Genesis borrowed from these other stories. Stories like the Gilgamesh epic and came up with uh, its own fanciful tale. Uh, Probably, though, uh, or, or some think that it's the other way around, that they borrowed from Noah's story, borrowed from the book of Genesis. Probably, though, neither borrowed from the other, but instead, they all derive their stories from the same singular historical event, an actual global flood. And I do wonder if all these flood myths throughout the globe are a clue That Noah's flood was universal, worldwide in nature. You see, if the Genesis account is true, and as a believer, I think it's true, then it makes sense that other cultures would create flood legends and mythologies over time. These stories would become corrupted over time, distorted over time, to the point that they barely resemble the Noahic account, but you might expect to find them throughout the whole planet, and we do in places like Mayan and Hindu flood legends. In other words, the widespread nature of flood legends throughout the history of the human race might be evidence a great flood actually occurred. For us, it's the Genesis record, which is detailed and trustworthy, passed down from Noah's time to Moses's, while the others are mere legend, piggybacking on and twisting uh, the actual events. So I thought I should talk about that for a few minutes, since maybe someone will come to you someday and say, there's all kinds of cultures that have flood stories like the Bibles do. And you know, that could actually be an evidence or a clue to the truthfulness of the account that we have in Genesis and the fact that a flood did occur. Okay, let's pick it up back in chapter 7, verse 17. It says, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Okay, for for now, I just want you, we're going to keep reading, but I just want you to note the height of the waters in relationship to the mountains there. In verse 20, they covered them by 15 cubits. That's 45 feet. Now, I'm going to talk about this in a moment, but there is some disagreement and debate about the meaning of this phrase. Some think it means just like we read it, you know, that water went above the mountains 45 feet above the mountains. Uh, Some see it, though, as a remark that even the mountains were splashed at their base, 15 or 45 feet up with crashing waves. Uh, So rather than covering all the mountain peaks, that it touched every single mountain. So just log that in your mind, because we're going to talk about that in a moment. But in verse 21, he goes on and says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now Jesus, before we move into chapter 8, said that his return would occur during a time similar to the days of Noah. In other words, he used this flood account as an analogy for the final judgment in which everyone will be swept away and only the righteous will enter the kingdom. He said it this way in Matthew chapter 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I think that Jesus, when he quoted that or talked about that, was likely highlighting the sudden nature of his second coming. You know that it would be unexpected judgment on an unexpected world. But he might have also been indicating what the times would be like on earth when he came. You know, in the days of Noah, the population was exploding. Sexual perversion was rampant. We saw that in the first portion of chapter 6. Demonic activity was present, and evil and violence were at an all-time high. Conditions then are found today. And as terrible as it is to consider the death of an entire world of humanity the record of it here in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 serves as a gracious warning to all of us who remain. In other words, we should not let the flood and the deaths of, this, uh, of humanity, we should not let their deaths be in, in vain. And Peter, for one, would not let that happen. He, he in a passage detailing God's ability to preserve a righteous remnant, Said this in Second Peter 2, verse five and following. He said, "If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. So in other words, for Peter, the flood is a reminder of the coming judgment. And for that, we pray, come Lord Jesus, but also use us to share the gospel with as many as possible. Now let's move on to chapter eight. Like I said, we're not going to get through the entire chapter, but we'll get all the way through verse 19. It says in verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, so after all this time in the ark, uh, some of the inhabitants, you know, Noah and his family, they might have begun to wonder, man, what's gonna happen to us? We've been in this boat for a very long time. The rains had stopped, but the earth was still covered with water. And so there they were floating around, and they might have felt, kind of doomed. You know, when are we going to get off this thing? But God, it says in verse 1, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And so God created this wind which helped the waters subside. And all the water sources were restrained in verse 3, and the waters started receding. Then 150 days later, the waters abated, and the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. Now, in eastern Turkey, near Armenia today, there is a Mount Ararat, uh, but it received its name a long time after the days of Noah, so we don't know for sure if it's the same mountain. Okay, so with this, especially looking at verse uh, 5, I want to talk about a question that comes up. Was the flood that we just read here in Genesis, was it a global flood, or was it a local flood? This is a question that many Christians ask. And and let me just say this first. All through the passage, the natural reading just makes it sound worldwide in nature. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 6, God saw the corruption of the earth, not a region, but the earth. Uh, Verse 13 of chapter 6, God determined to end all flesh, Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 6, God told Noah to make an ark rather than just move to a different region. You know, like, there's gonna be a flood in this little area, build an ark. You know, like, why not just move? They were in the ark for a very long time, seemingly too long for just a local flood. It took a long time for those waters to subside. Uh, He had to rescue the animals rather than just let them flee If it was a local flood into the surrounding regions or let the flooded region become repopulated with other animals and species even birds had to come aboard suggesting they could not outfly the coming disaster god opened verse 11 of chapter 7 the fountains of the deep time and time again the earth is referred to not just some of the earth all flesh is mentioned The waters prevailed greatly on the earth in verse 18 of chapter 7. Even above the mountains in verse 20 of chapter 7. All flesh died in verse 21 of chapter 7. Everything on dry land died, verse 22 of chapter 7. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, verse 23 of chapter 7. And finally, here in the section that we just read, it says in verse 5, that the tops of the mountains, eventually as the waters receded, The tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, this last phrase is the reason that I wanted to talk about this question about whether the flood was local or global right here at this point in our study. Because every phrase that I just alluded to in chapter six and seven can be explained in an alternative way by those who see the Genesis flood as local in nature. Uh, In one sense, all the other statements are compatible with a flood only known uh, by the populated world or by a people in a particular region. But the most difficult phrase of all of them to take in a local sense is the one found in verse 5. It's the one they have the hardest time with. The tops of the mountains were seen. In previous sections, like I said, it's possible to take the language as meaning the base of the mountains, But here, though, it's clear Moses meant the very tops of the mountains. Okay, but those who think it was a local flood, what they think that Moses is trying to communicate is that on the horizon, as the waters receded, Noah began to see the tops of the mountains in the distance. Rather than that, they were submerged and now are visible. Okay, so given all the linguistic evidence pointing to a worldwide flood or all those clues Why is this even a question? Well, for a few hundred years now, a couple hundred years now, geologists have been arguing that the thick sedimentary rock layers on the earth were not formed quickly in a worldwide flood, but slowly over long ages. And many Christian geologists hold that particular view and opinion, saying that the strata below uh, was formed slowly over time. Uh, people in this camp take the earth, when it's spoken of in Genesis 6 through 8, as the land or the ground, that the land that Noah was in was flooded or the ground that Noah was in was flooded. They don't see any geological, uh, geologic evidence for the theory that a canopy of water existed in the sky before the flood, nor do they see the evidence for flood geology. They believe there are problems related to the idea of a worldwide flood. Here are some of them. How do you fit all the species onto the ark? Where was there enough water to cover mountain ranges? And where did all that water go when the waters subsided? They ask, where would the 630 million cubic miles of water go during the second 150 days when the waters receded? Even their study of the region around Mesopotamia causes them to conclude that conditions there were perfect for a sudden, massive, localized flood. To people with this view, the floodwaters extended as far as the eye could see, and the idea of a global flood is more of a centuries-old tradition without biblical or scientific evidence. There's even a group called the Affiliation of Christian Geologists who reject the idea of flood geology throughout the whole world. And I'm sure you've heard of flood geology. It's been popularized by many Christians in recent years. Uh, To this camp, there's major evidence that a worldwide flood exists in the sedimentary rock layers below. Some of the clues that they think they see pointing to Uh, A worldwide flood are fossils of sea creatures high above sea level, the apparent rapid burial of plants and animals in the strata, rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas, you know, saying that even rock layers can be traced all the way across continents. Sediment transported long distances rapidly by fast-moving water. And rapid erosion, or even no erosion, between rock layers. In other words, if it was slow over time, you'd see lots of uh, erosion in the rock layers, but that's not how you see them. They just seem to have been formed rather quickly with, with smoothness and not a lot of fracture. But again, all this evidence is refuted by other geologists, including Christian geologists. So what are we to think? Okay. All that said, Though some see the Genesis flood as very local, wiping out only a few towns along a river, and others see it a little bit bigger, like in a region, or even extending to the entire known world at the time, I still tend to see the flood as global. And some of my reasons for this as follows. First of all, the flood seems to be too long to have been localized. Why did it take 150 extra days? They were on the ark for 377 days. A local flood just seems uh, like it wouldn't have to be that long. The language, as I mentioned, of Genesis seems to point to a local flood. To me, that's the natural reading of the text. The need for the waters of the great deep uh, also seemed to speak to a global flood. Like I mentioned, the need for an ark Seems to be a clue about a global flood. If it was just local, you know, why didn't God say, hey, Noah, there's going to be a big flood in this area. You should hike away from here. But instead, he had to build an ark. Uh, The destruction of mankind was thorough, indicating a global flood. God promised that floodwaters would never again destroy humanity, which indicates that the thousands of lesser floods which have occurred since Noah's flood have not violated God's promise. And then there's the worldwide appearance of the flood narratives and the history of various people groups. And also, we're going to see in Genesis 9 and 10 that Genesis traces all the people in the world back to Noah and his family. Then there's the testimony of Peter. He said it this way in 2 Peter 3, verse 5 and 6. He says that people deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So it seems to be innate to us to try to deny the fact of the flood according to Peter. And, and on top of all that, Jesus used Noah's flood as an example Of the coming judgment. In other words, it seems that Jesus saw it as something that was universal in scope. Okay, let me just conclude this little portion of the teaching by reminding you that this little debate that I just talked about, local versus global, this actually isn't the purpose of this passage that we're reading tonight. The Bible often uses non-scientific language to tell its story. This is not a story about flood geology or the age of the universe. This is a story about God's judgment. And so even though I just said that I believe that this was a global flood, if you think it's a local flood, well, we can still be homies. It's just fine. (laughs) The point is that God saw the wickedness in the earth, and he decided to judge it. Okay, We have to remember that. Okay, let's move on and wrap up our study. It says in verse six, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand And took her and brought her into the ark with him. And he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore." Okay, the idea here with the sending out of the raven and then the dove is that the raven was a bird of prey who would have been able to live off the flesh that the flood left, left behind. So he lets out the raven and it doesn't return. But the, when, he's, when Noah sends out the dove and it finds no place to set on her foot, it's because uh, the, the dove would not eat meat. Seven days later, though, Noah repeated the process and this time, she brings back a freshly plucked olive leaf. Okay? This indicates that the waters had subsided. The olive trees are uh, very durable uh, trees, and so apparently some of them had survived through the deluge, and now that they'd appeared because the waters had subsided, the dove picks an olive leaf and brings it back to Noah. Finally, he waited another seven days, and verse 12 sent out the dove again. She didn't return, and they just took it as a sign that the waters had subsided. All of this, by the way, has a theme in it. It's a really cool theme. It's a theme of, of rest, of rest. The ark rested in the mountain. The dove found no place to rest or to set her foot until she found the olive leaf and then eventually went out and didn't return because she found a place to rest. And the idea is that so would Noah and his family. So would humanity. So would we. We would find a place to rest once again here on earth. The wrath of God had been satisfied. Man had a new start. In verse 13, it goes on and says, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, On the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, okay? Throughout the passage, there have been various time markers, you know, 150 days here, Noah was 600 when it started, you know, all these different things. But when you add it all up, like I mentioned earlier, Noah and his family were in the ark for over a year, 377 days. And I can't imagine that it smelled nice after a whole year with all those animals. They were really ready to get off that ark. So then God said to Noah, verse 16, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Okay, now, in in our next study in Genesis, we're gonna focus on how Noah responded to God once he left the ark. He's going to worship the Lord. And we're going to talk about the covenant that God made with Noah once he left the ark. But for now, I just wanna close by thinking about Noah as a salvific figure. He was not the one that would crush the serpent's head. You know, the story is going to reveal that as time goes on. In, in our next study in Genesis, we're going to see him, even in a sense, disqualify himself from that work. But he does point forward to the, the serpent crusher, to the Savior, to Jesus, the one who delivers us from the ultimate judgment of God. It's for us to believe in him, to believe in Jesus, and come into the safety of his ark, the safety of his cross, to deliver us from our sin cleansing and forgiving us in the sight of God. So Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the even somber warning of of just considering the breakout of your judgment upon earth. Lord, it's one of those things that we often don't want to really think about, but Lord, you have saved us from our sins through the blood of the Son. There is judgment that was supposed to be ours, but you made a way for us to escape it. And Father, for that, we rejoice and we thank you tonight. And Lord, we pray as we still are walking here on the face of the earth that we might be able to share this wonderful love and salvation with as many people as possible. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you've given to us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.